Welcome to the Audio Digest of the American Journal of Psychiatry. This is Dr. Robert Friedman with highlights from the July 2013 issue. We'll look at behavioral treatment of insomnia in bipolar disorder, factors in the placebo effect, and the relationship of childhood trauma to psychotic experiences. We'll also examine a group of articles on anxiety disorders. One reports a treatment trial for social anxiety disorder, which compared psychodynamics, psychotherapy, and CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Another treatment study focuses on early, older adults with generalized anxiety disorder whose antidepressant treatment was augmented with CBT. And late-onset agoraphobia was examined in a population study that identified new cases of agoraphobia over four years in the elderly. The agoraphobia article has been selected for CME for readers who subscribe to the AJP CME course program. Each month, brief companion exams are created for three articles from the issue. By reading the articles and completing the online exam, individuals can earn up to one AMA PRA Category 1 credit per article. This activity is sponsored by the American Psychiatric Association. To subscribe, please click on the CME link at our homepage, ajp.psychiatryonline.org. We'll begin the July highlights with our treatment and psychiatry feature. It's about the common problem of sleep disturbance in bipolar disorder. Katherine Kaplan and Allison Harvey present a small trial of behavioral treatment and make clinical recommendations. Cognitive behavioral therapy is increasingly used for insomnia and has several advantages for sleep disturbance in bipolar disorder. It does not cause adverse interactions with medication and may be more acceptable to patients. The study participants were 15 patients with bipolar disorder and insomnia. Standardizing their bedtimes and rise times was the first step in the behavioral treatment. This alone was often sufficient to bring about improvements in sleep. In addition, the patients were given instructions on stimulus control. This involves using the bed and bedroom only for sleep and intercourse, going to bed only when sleepy, and leaving the bedroom if unable to fall asleep or return to sleep within 15 or 20 minutes. The week after starting stimulus control, two patients reported mild increases in hypomanic symptoms, but their total sleep time did not actually change. Another behavioral intervention is sleep restriction. It involves limiting time in bed to the actual amount of time slept. The patient keeps a sleep diary, and the total of all sleep periods is averaged. The focus is on sleep efficiency total sleep time divided by time in bed. The goal is to raise sleep efficiency to 85%. Most patients in the trial did not require sleep restriction because they had marked improvements from just setting regular bedtimes and rise times. For some other patients, sleep restriction was considered inappropriate because their average total sleep time was already less than six hours per night. Five into individuals were introduced to sleep restriction. Two developed brief, mild mood elevation in the following weeks. 
the mood elevation lasted only one or two days and coincided with psychosocial life changes. In both cases, total sleep did not change. Practitioners should carefully monitor changes in mood and daytime sleepiness throughout the intervention. Recommendations for non-pharmacologic treatment of insomnia and bipolar disorder also include a simple sleep diary. Patients record the time they take to fall asleep, time they're awake in the middle of the night, early morning awakenings, and daytime naps. If sleepiness becomes clinically significant, the clinician should discourage the patient from driving or other potentially unsafe behaviors during periods of drowsiness. Encourage the use of friends, family, and technology to help the patient adhere to the behavioral intervention. It can be helpful to set an alarm as a reminder to begin a wind-down period or to wake up in the same time each morning. Likewise, recruiting family and friends to respect a no-call period in the hour before bedtime can be crucial. The next article is about high placebo response rates in clinical trials of antidepressants. Placebo responses hinder the ability to detect efficacy for new antidepressants and have been cited in the popular press in questioning the value of antidepressant medication. This may further stigmatize treatments for depression and dissuade patients from accessing mental health care. Brett Rutherford and Stephen Roos describe factors in the high placebo response rates and steps that can be taken to lower them. The placebo effect is not the same as a placebo response. The placebo response is the actual change in symptoms in patients randomized to receive placebo in a clinical trial. It is directly quantified. A placebo effect is one possible element in this response and is often conceptualized in terms of patient expectancy. Placebo effects, of course, can affect response in both active and inactive arms of a study. One element affecting patient expectancy is the number of treatment arms in the clinical trial. A greater number of treatment arms increases the probability of receiving active medication, which may increase patient expectations and generate higher placebo effects. Another influence on placebo response is the amount of therapeutic contact the patients receive. A review of 41 randomized controlled trials of antidepressants for major depression indicated that the number of study visits explained approximately 50% of the symptom change between weeks 2 and 6 among patients receiving placebo. Patients who received active medication also had more symptomatic change with higher numbers of visits, but the effect was only about half of what was observed in the placebo group. The influences of treatment factors on placebo response rates may actually be helpful in clinical practice. The intensive therapeutic contact found in antidepressant trials may be contrasted with what patients receive in the community. In community samples of patients receiving antidepressant medication, about three-quarters are treated exclusively by general medical providers as opposed to psychiatrists. Fewer than 20% have a mental health care visit in the first four weeks after starting antidepressant treatment. Placebo response also depends on measurement factors. One source of apparent symptom change in antidepressant trials is regression to the mean. This happens when repeated measurements associated with random error are made on the same subject over time. 
It poses a problem at the group level in clinical trials because a threshold depression severity score is set as an inclusion criterion. Some of the participants actually have true scores that are below the threshold, and the tendency for their scores to fall on repeated measurement will give the the appearance of group-level improvement, when in fact no true change has occurred. This decrease in mean score won't be offset by a corresponding upward regression to the mean in individuals whose scores were initially underestimated because these patients will have been excluded from the study. Rater bias can also influence scores. For example, clinical raters typically perceive more symptom change in response to treatment than is self-reported by patients. This could reflect an excessive enthusiasm for detecting treatment effects. In addition, evaluations of whether patients are eligible for a clinical trial may be biased towards inflating the baseline score if investigators have a financial incentive to recruit patients. The primary method to reduce measurement error in antidepressant clinical trials is to institute a comprehensive and ongoing rater training program. This maintains inter-rater reliability at a minimum level. Other methods to avoid inflation of the baseline score include setting a minimum depression severity score for enrollment, but a higher threshold for inclusion in the data analysis. Another technique is to blind raters at individual study sites to the timing of the baseline assessment. Higher placebo response rates lead to lower effect size for antidepressant medications. Investigators have attempted to compensate by employing multiple study sites to obtain larger samples. However, greater measurement error is associated with multicenter trials, and this leads to lower effect sizes for medication. This often offsets the benefits of larger samples. Research has failed to identify consistent characteristics of patients likely to respond to placebo, but features of the depressive illness appear to influence the magnitude of placebo response in an antidepressant clinical trial. One of the most replicated findings in recent years has been that placebo response decreases with increasing severity of baseline depression scores. Psychotic features and recurrence have also been linked to lower rates of placebo response. Now we'll look at how childhood trauma relates to psychotic symptoms. There's debate as to whether the connection is causal. One of the necessary criteria for causality is a temporal relationship. Exposure to the supposed cause must precede the effect. Other criteria that support a causal relationship, including include a strong association and a dose-response relationship. Also, if the exposure ceases or decreases, then the odds of the outcome should also cease or decrease. Ian Kelleher and colleagues did a prospective study to examine the relationship between childhood trauma and psychosis according to these criteria. The participants were students at randomly selected schools in a representative area of Ireland. They completed a self-report survey between the ages of 13 and 16. The survey was repeated three months later and again at 12 months. The survey included questions about physical abuse and bullying. At baseline, the students were asked if they had been physically attacked in the past 12 months. A series of yes or no questions were used to assess bullying. 
An answer of yes to any of the six questions was categorized as bullying, and severity was scored from zero to six, indicating the number of yes answers. The measures were repeated at the three- and 12-month follow-ups with the wording adjusted to inquire about the interval since the previous assessment. Psychotic experiences were reevaluated with a single question. Have you ever heard voices or sounds that no one else can hear? It has been demonstrated that this question has excellent positive and negative predictive value for phenomena that are later clinically verified as psychotic in nature. The onset of psychotic experiences at 3 or 12 months was predicted by a report at baseline of physical assault. Psychotic experiences were also predicted by previous bullying. The odds of psychotic experiences increased in a dose-response fashion with the increase in the severity of the bullying. The analyses also examined whether psychotic experiences stopped if the traumatic events stopped. For both bullying and physical abuse, individuals who reported these events at baseline but not during the next three months had a lower risk of psychotic symptoms at three months compared with students whose trauma continued. A similar relationship held for the interval between three and 12 months. The reverse was partially true. Psychotic experience reported at baseline predicted the onset of physical assault at three and at 12 months. Psychotic experiences reported at baseline also predicted bullying at three months, but not at 12 months. There are several possible explanations for the bidirectional relationship between childhood trauma and psychotic experience. One is that psychotic symptoms may lead to behavior that attracts hostile or bullying responses. Another is that children with psychotic symptoms may live in settings where traumatic experiences are more likely. In this case, psychotic symptoms would predict traumatic experiences but not necessarily cause them. Now we'll highlight anxiety disorders. We'll begin with the treatment of social anxiety disorder. There's evidence from a large body of research that cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, is beneficial for this condition. But there's little evidence about the efficacy of psychodynamic therapy for social anxiety disorder. So Falk Leishenring and colleagues conducted a multicenter randomized treatment study comparing CBT, psychodynamic therapy, and a waiting list control condition. In order to obtain a clinically representative sample, recruitment allowed patients with comorbid mental disorders that were less severe than social anxiety disorder. Approximately 200 were, were, were assigned to CBT, 200 to psychodynamic therapy, and 80 to the waiting list. About a quarter of each group dropped out during the study. The CBT method was based on the model of Clark and Wells. This approach establishes a personal version of the model and includes behavioral experiments based on role-playing, practicing external focus of attention, and restructuring distorted self-image by video feedback or behavioral experiments. To make the results of psychodynamic therapy comparable with those of CBT, a manual-guided form of psychodynamic therapy was specifically developed for this trial. It was based on Laborski's model of psychodynamic therapy and was adapted to treat social anxiety disorder. 
This model encompasses both supportive and expressive interventions that are assumed to lead to therapeutic change. Expressive interventions relate the symptoms of social anxiety disorder to the patient's underlying core conflictual relationship theme. The intervention also includes a supportive component as it refers to the common work between patient and therapist. The core conflictual relationship theme is worked through in present and past relationships as well as in relationship to the therapist. Both CBT and psychodynamic therapy included up to 25 weekly sessions, generally lasting 50 minutes. A few of the CBT sessions lasted twice as long and were counted as two treatments. In psychodynamic therapy, the sessions were also weekly, except during the middle part of the treatment. At this point, there were two sessions a week to intensify the treatment and make it the same as CBT. The outcomes for both CBT and psychodynamic therapy were superior to the results for the waiting list control condition. The response rates were 60% for CBT, 52% for psychodynamic therapy, and 15% for the control condition. The difference in response between CBT and psychodynamic therapy was not significant. There were significant differences in favor of CBT, for remission and for secondary measures of social phobia and interpersonal problems. However, all differences between CBT and psychodynamic therapy resulted in small between-group effect sizes, and the differences between treatments were smaller than the differences between therapists. Also, the response rate of 52% achieved by psychodynamic therapy for social anxiety disorder is comparable to rates reported for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, for pharmacotherapy in general, and for group CBT. In her editorial, Barbara Milrod examines how supportive expressive therapy can be used in clinical trials. The original development of supportive expressive therapy in the 1970s was a groundbreaking achievement in research on psychodynamic psychotherapy. The establishment of a manualized supportive dynamic treatment enabled testing of this modality in randomized controlled trials. Supportive expressive therapy focuses on articulating a core conflictual relationship theme. This relates to, but isn't equivalent to, the transference relationship which forms a key interventional focus in many forms of psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic psychotherapy. Supportive expressive therapy lacks the full psychodynamic focus on developmental relationships and events, formative attachments, and underlying fantasy structure. Some elements of this therapy, as used in the study by Leishenring and colleagues, appear alien to psychodynamic practitioners, for example, the inclusion of an exposure component. This large comparative study constituted the first test of supportive expressive therapy for social therapy. This newly manualized psychotherapy was tested in a large-scale randomized control trial against a standard reference treatment. There was no chance to calibrate and adapt it to social phobia. Ordinarily, this role is taken in smaller, open clinical trials. The supportive expressive therapy sessions were weekly at the beginning and at the end of treatment, and twice weekly in the middle of the treatment. This schedule is described as an attempt to match the CBT schedule rather than tuning choices to optimize this new treatment. Termination in dynamic therapies for patients with anxiety disorders is often fraught with ambivalence and rage. 
It re-evokes underlying separation and autonomy conflicts which loom large in this patient group. Dynamic therapists can use this intensification of affect near the end of therapy to deepen understanding and relief from anxiety. Hence, the decision to lower the dose of this therapy towards its end might have decreased its effectiveness at a critical juncture. Despite these problems, studies such as the one by Leishenring and colleagues are crucial for advancing an evidence base for psychotherapies. Although supportive expressive therapy fared less well than CBT in this study, it clearly seems an active treatment for social phobia. Now a pressing task is to use clinical trial data to personalize which treatment works best for whom. Elderly patients with anxiety disorders don't necessarily respond to medication the same way that younger patients do. Generalized anxiety disorder is common among older adults, but medication or CBT alone doesn't appear to be as effective uh, acutely for this group as it is for younger adults. Julie Weatherall and colleagues examined whether sequence treatment combining pharmacotherapy and CBT would boost response and prevent relapse in older adults with generalized anxiety disorder. The study participants were adults 60 or over who had a DSM-4 principal diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. The study provided treatment in three phases, acute, augmentation, and maintenance. In the acute phase, all patients were treated with open-label escitalopram at a maximum dose of 20 milligrams a day. At the end of 12 weeks, participants whose symptoms had improved were randomly assigned to one of four conditions for the augmentation and managed maintenance phases. During the 16-week augmentation phase, all of the patients continued to take escitalopram, and half of them also received the course of CBT. Following that was the maintenance phase after CBT augmentation ended. At this point, escitalopram was switched to placebo for half the patients who received CBT and half of those who hadn't. The CBT protocol was modular and consisted of 16 sessions. It targeted symptoms of worry and anxiety. Some components were tailored to each participant's presenting symptoms, but all of the patients received modules devoted to psychoeducation and self-monitoring, relaxation training, cognitive therapy, and problem solving. 73 patients completed the study. Response was defined in two ways. When it was defined as a score of 10 or less on the Hamilton anxiety scale, the rate of response did not differ significantly between patients who received escitalopram plus CBT and those who got escitalopram only. However, when response was defined as a decrease of at least 8.5 points on the Penn State Worry Questionnaire, patients who received CBT were about three times as likely to respond by the end of the augmentation phase as were patients who did not receive CBT. Differences were also seen during the maintenance phase. Regardless of CBT status, participants assigned to maintenance escitalopram had a significantly lower relapse rate than those who were switched to placebo, 3% versus 46%. Because the effect of medication on preventing relapse was so strong, the effect of CBT was examined only in the group receiving placebo pills during maintenance. The relapse rate during the maintenance phase among the patients who had previously received CBT was only 25%.
whereas in the group that had not been given CBT, the rate was 66%. So three-quarters of the participants who received CBT were able to discontinue their medication and remain well. This suggests that CBT may allow a sustained response without requiring longer-term pharmacotherapy. David Barlow and Jonathan Comer consider the sequential design of the study in an editorial. Extended follow-ups of antidepressant treatment for late-life generalized anxiety disorder have been rare, so practitioners are left with limited evidence with which to inform clinical efforts to maintain antidepressant treatment response. Partly as a consequence, in recent years, there's been a progressive expansion in the use of antipsychotic medications to manage generalized anxiety disorder and other anxiety disorders across the lifespan. This is often done in an effort to augment antidepressant medication effects, despite limited evidence supporting the safety and effectiveness of these off-label practices. Antipsychotic medications are especially concerning with regard to older populations. The design of the study by Weatherall and colleagues can only speak to the care of patients who show initial antidepressant response. Recent advances in intervention science offer innovative options for systematically evaluating treatment sequences that flexibly adapt to the patient's fluctuating responses over time. Specifically, the past decade has seen the development, refinement, articulation, and increased use of sequential multiple assignment randomized trials, or SMARTs. These yield high-quality data with which to develop evidence-based adaptive treatment regimens. These regimens differentially incorporate the benefits of medication and psychological components of care across critical points in the course of treatment. A SMART includes multiple intervention strategies, but as patients move through them, the randomization options at critical decision points are typically determined by the patient's performance or response at that point. The design of a SMART improves on traditional factorial methods, which focus exclusively on broad main effects of monotherapies and combined treatments across a single treatment phase. Instead, a SMART design recognizes the true multi-phase nature of the treatment process for the majority of patients in clinical practice. We'll conclude with a study of phobias in the elderly. They're associated with higher mortality rates and cardiac risk factors. Studies of anxiety disorders in the elderly suggest that rates of phobias are much higher than previous epidemiologic studies have suggested. In particular, agoraphobia in older adults has received little attention. Clinical reports suggest that it's commonly overlooked since unwillingness to go outside the house in the elderly is easily attributed to poor health and loss of social networks. To better characterize late-onset agoraphobia, Karen Ritchie and colleagues examined data from a population sample of elderly persons in France. Cross-sectional data were available for more than 1,500 patients aged 65 or older. They were interviewed with the MINI International Neuropsychiatric Interview, the MINI, which provided data for DSM-4 psychiatric diagnoses and a record of suicidal ideation. The MINI uses a non-hierarchical case identification procedure, thus permitting the diagnosis of psychiatric comorbidities. 
10% of the elderly adults in the sample had a one-month prevalence of agoraphobia. It was significantly associated with trait anxiety, severe depressive symptoms, and a history of major depression. Most of the individuals in the sample were re-interviewed at two and four years. Of the elderly persons who did not have agoraphobia at baseline, 11% had a first episode of agoraphobia during the follow-up period. These participants also had more frequent first episodes of other anxiety disorders, specifically generalized anxiety disorder. They were somewhat more likely to have suicidal ideation, but the difference fell short of statistical significance. There was no increase in the incidence of severe depression among individuals with new cases of agoraphobia. In addition, only one of these individuals had panic disorder within the follow-up period, and one reported previous panic disorder at baseline. A multivariate model was used to determine the most significant predictors of new cases of agoraphobia, taking into account age, sex, and identified risk factors. This model retained lower age, worse visual spatial memory, severe current depression, and trait anxiety as significant predictors of incident agoraphobia. Severe depression at baseline greatly increased the odds of subsequent agoraphobia, but incident new episodes of severe depression weren't related. Ritchie and colleagues did not apply hierarchical exclusion of diagnoses. The results suggest that agoraphobia may be relatively common in the elderly. Late onset cases show clear distinctions from early onset cases. There seem to be no sex differences in late onset cases, and they're not associated with panic disorder. Also in late onset cases, severe depression is a risk factor rather than a consequence of the disorder. In this four-year follow-up, agoraphobia in the elderly wasn't related to increased risk for cardiac pathology. Agoraphobia in this cohort was undertreated, with the treatment preference being anxiolytics rather than antidepressants, despite the presence of severe depressive symptoms. Screening for agoraphobia in the elderly is worthwhile since it's a highly treatable condition that may be masked by depression and overlooked when there's no history of panic attacks. Its possible association with suicidal ideation in the elderly is of clinical concern, however, because persons with agoraphobia may be less likely to seek help. The finding that agoraphobia in the elderly has an atypical presentation is also relevant to the ongoing process of diagnostic revision suggesting a need to consider the possibility of a syndrome subtype in older populations. This concludes our audio highlights of the July issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry. Please visit our website, ajp.psychiatryonline.org, for the complete versions of these and other articles, including author affiliations and financial disclosures. We also welcome comments. They can be mailed to Jane Weaver. Her mail address is jweaver at psych.org. Next month, our topics will include emotion regulation in adolescents with non-suicidal self-injury, the DSM-5 criterion for substance abuse, functional remediation in bipolar disorder, adaptive treatment for smoking cessation, and mortality rates for eating disorders over time. We hope that you will join us. Thank you for listening.